0: Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Twice a week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're driving to work in the morning or cooking dinner at night, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Well, hey folks, thanks for coming back to another edition of the... Church Lessons podcast. Gosh, we're great that you're here with us, continuing to journey along as we study uh, these epistles of John. Uh, and when we left off last time, we had just sneaked into chapter 2 of 1 John, uh, and we had touched on the first verse a little bit, talked about how uh, Christ was our advocate, uh, and that person who... Um, who spoke to the father on our behalf. And so we want to pick up there and look at two other aspects of Christ that John is talking about. And what I'd like to do is is jump into the word by going back to the beginning of chapter 2 and we'll read verses 1 through 6 uh, and then we'll kind of talk about it as we go and break it down into uh, some lessons and some theology that we think John is conveying. So Uh, Without further ado, let's get in it because the word is good and it is powerful and we need to let it speak to us today. As I read these verses, I want you to keep this in mind. Verses three through six, verses three through six are probably the heart of John's message in 1 John. So you're going to capture the summary of everything he's trying to teach probably in this area. So listen to it and listen to it well. We'll try to read it uh, with a little bit slower pace. 1 John chapter 2 My little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous The last time we talked about that my little children is a term of affection a term of endearment for the audience we also talked about that when John talks about sin, he talks about it in two forms. And he does that literally in this verse. He says um, we, that we may not sin. We are writing these things that you may not sin. Uh, and that sin there in the context is implied to be live a life of sin. But then he goes on to say, but if you do sin, and when he's talking about sin there, he's talking about The individual incidents of sin; those moments when we are not on target uh, for for God, and that that word for sin is is harmatia, Uh, and it is an archery term actually that means missing the mark. It's not that you're not trying necessarily; it's just that you don't hit the bullseye. Uh, And then he talks about, as we said, Jesus is our advocate. Then he goes on in verse two and he says, "And He is the atoning sacrifice." This is the second aspect of Christ that John wants to talk about, our sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now by this we may be sure that we know him, if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar. And in such a person the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. A lot of good stuff in here. I want to touch on a a few words to make sure that we understand what's being said and what's being implied. Uh, I want to... Take a look at the word perfection in verse 5, because quite honestly, that one makes me a little bit nervous uh, that, that we're supposed to have some level of perfection. Five, verse 5 says, but whoever obeys his word truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. That Greek word for perfection does not mean without flaw, and that's kind of how we use it in contemporary society a lot of times, is that if you're perfect, you made no mistakes. That's not really what John is saying. Actually, that word perfect in that context means that you are doing exactly what God intended you to do. So if you are loving in the way that God has instructed, then his love is perfected in you. Um, Let's look at some of the themes that we find in here in this passage. First of all, we talked about that Christ is our atoning sacrifice. In verse 2, and in Christian thought, the act by which God and man are brought together in a personal relationship, that's the atoning sacrifice, right? And if you talk about an atoning sacrifice, something, uh, and, and if you look at that word atoning, what it really means is that you, you are brought back together, one, uh, at one with that which uh, you have been separated from. It implies a separation, an alienation that needs to be overcome. And of course, for us as believers, we know that that separation, that alienation occurs in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, recall that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have these two uh, different uh, but amazing stories about God's creation. And uh, The one in Genesis chapter 1 is a very functional uh, portrayal of Creation over a period of days. There is order brought and meaning brought to the earth, uh, culminating with uh, the design and the creation of humankind. In Genesis chapter two, though, it is a different approach to the same story, uh, but it is very much focused from the perspective of humankind being made in the image of God. Uh, and those two verses, uh, those two chapters, we have this wonderful. Story again, set in two different ways of creation, and then in chapter three, wow, it doesn't take us long to get to uh, the fall of humankind and the disobedience that then separates us from God and creation. Now, go back and read Genesis three sometime, and when God talks about the consequences of this, it is all broken relationships, broken relationships with the soil. Broken relationships with God, broken relationships uh, with animals, broken relationships between uh, man and woman, broken relationships with the future generation. That is the childbirth pains. So read that uh, when you get a chance, and you'll see all the brokenness that's listed in Genesis chapter 3. But when we have that atoning sacrifice, then what happens is, is that we are reconciled back to God because we are forgiven from that sinful lifestyle that John has mentioned in the first part of of chapter 2, we are reconciled from that so that we can then begin living more in harmony and union with creation as God intended and with God himself. So this atoning sacrifice is closely tied, especially in the New Testament, to forgiveness, which then allows for reconciliation. And it was immediate at the cross. And through the resurrection. As soon as Jesus offers himself, then the barriers to that relationship uh, are broken. Uh, We are uh, uh, looked over of our sins. Uh, They are covered over. God does not have to look upon us as sinful anymore. And that allows us to reconcile with him. And again, it's immediate, and we should begin living in that. Uh, In the old testament, uh, the Hebrew word for atone is kafar, and it conveys what I just talked about kind of with our sin nature, this covering, a covering to hide uh, our, our blemishes, uh, but also a covering for someone else so that they don't have to look upon it. Um, uh, we, are, we are kind of hidden in our sinful nature so that we don't have to be charged and penalized For all of that, that is the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And um, now that we've talked about Jesus as advocate and sacrifice, kind of picture in your mind Jesus uh, standing or seated right beside God on the judgment throne. And as we stand before God and 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 we go through all of the mistakes in our lives and all the ways that we fall short and are unholy, and then Jesus kind of leans over to God and says. That one is covered by me. And so that God does not look upon all of that uh, unholiness, but says, "Come on in, uh, my good and faithful servant. That's a beautiful image of what Jesus has done for me. So we've atoned for our sins. In the Old Testament, it was done by uh, animal sacrifice, almost always. There's some other um, atoning sacrifices that are done through incense and the altar is, 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 is atoned for, the holy place is atoned for, but a lot of the atonement sacrifices in the Old Testament are done for the forgiveness of sins, and it was done with an unblemished animal as representative of that which, which is holy. Uh, the Old Testament never really talks about how this works, uh, if you will, on a, on a metaphysical level. We don't understand the process of what happens when a sacrifice is offered uh, to God, because that's probably not really the important piece, right? The important piece is the focus on the means of atonement, right? Why, how it happens, what are the necessary steps so that we can perform it? Uh, and in the Old Testament, again, that is done through through those sacrifices, primarily uh, unblemished animal sacrifices. And you find this captured primarily, you find it in multiple places in the Old Testament, But if you want to go back and and read about kind of the primary chunk of language written on Old Testament sacrifices, look in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6 and 16, and you will find it there. In the New Testament, uh, atonement, as you can anticipate, takes on a little bit of a different meaning, but it is still central uh, to what is happening with reconciliation and the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to bring uh, the word atonement never really gets used uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the closest word in Greek that we, that we have for it uh, is hilasterion, and that implies um, propitiation, if you will, or expiation. Propitiation and expiation are, are when uh, something replaces something else. Jesus has replaced us. Uh, at death so that we don't have to experience it. And again, it's that defeating of evil. It's that covering of the sinful nature so that God can be reconciled with us. We can be reconciled with God. You'll see some of that language in Romans chapter three, verse 25. If you want to write these down and go back to them, feel free to do so. And in Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. The, The New Testament frames Uh, the Hebrew understanding of atonement and sacrifice around the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus, specifically Jesus' work on the cross, is where that atonement is accomplished, as we've already said. It doesn't mean that Jesus' ministry is not important. It's clearly important. There is more to our faith uh, than just the act of atonement. That is really the beginning uh, of our faith. Now, once you are atoned, you're not done, uh, as some people will, will act. Once they have given their life to Christ, then uh, they just kind of cruise on with life after that. But really, uh, and you'll find this in John's writings, Peter's writings, Paul's writings, the book of James is thick with this. Once we are atoned and we have that faith and that belief, then there needs to be an outpouring of good deeds and good works uh, that come out of that. So, uh, even though it is the atonement piece is centered on Jesus Christ and very much focused on his death on the cross, it matters that we understand the full teachings of Jesus, which are all about uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom and how we should live now because we have been atoned and we are part of the family of God. We should live now as, as we're going to live in eternity. Right, that's. Go back and read the Beatitudes, and you get a whole lot of that. Now, sometimes they seem counterintuitive, and that's understandable because they don't fit in with where our culture is and where society is, and that's the whole point. Uh, if we are believers and we live by those beliefs, then we're going to swim upstream many times, uh, just like the salmon does uh, in the seasonal spawning time. We're going to swim upstream against the current Because that's what uh, Jesus has taught us. He says the way will be narrow. And the Greek word there, when he teaches that, means it's going to be tight and afflicted. Uh, So it is all focused on Jesus Christ, and the authors of the New Testament, including uh, John, kind of interpret Christ's death as that once and for all atonement event. It doesn't have to happen anymore, Jesus is it. Nothing else has to be done to satisfy the needs of God for, that, for us to be holy and to be reconciled, except that we believe in it. There's nothing that we can do in our flesh. There's no good works that are good enough. Uh, scripture says that our best works are like filthy rags because there are no way. there is no way they can be holy. Uh, only holiness comes from and through Jesus Christ. So Christ is our sacrifice, and then in verse 4, John says Christ is our truth, right? Truth occurs, according to John, not only when we know Christ, but we obey his commands. So truth for John is not just understanding, there's also a fidelity piece. If I'm not living my truth, then I don't understand truth, and this is directly pointed at those Gnostic teachings Uh, The Gnostics are saying, I can live however I want to as long as I know the special truth, right? I don't have to live out the special truth. I just have to know it because the flesh and the spirit for them are separate. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe as Christians that our flesh and our spirit connect with the Holy Spirit, and it is one, and we are intended to be fulfilled as spirit and flesh. So You've got to know the truth, and you've got to know where it comes from, and John's going to talk about that, but then you've got to live the truth. And if you're not living the truth, John's going to tell you, then you're walking in darkness, and there's no way that you have truth in you. That's why Jesus says, in, in, and it's recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says he is the way and the truth and the light. All right? That's very important, and it really fits in with John's teachings here The Bible doesn't really provide us with what I would call a systematic account of of the nature of truth. It doesn't really give us this great breakdown of what truth is and how it works and all that, but you get tons of examples of what truth is. John's going to give us several, Jesus gives us a bunch, the other authors of the New Testament do the same thing, so truth gets a lot of attention, but it's always in terms of God. Because truth comes from God, right? God's essence is truth. Nothing that God does or says is untrue. So if you want to know what truth is, it's not so much a prescription, it's look to God. And for us as Christians, we look to God through Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what's true, look to Jesus. What did he do? What did he say? If we obey his commands, then we are in the truth. If we do not obey his commands then we are living in, in darkness and, and we are liars, uh, John says. Uh, so all things exist, and uh, you can read this in Ephesians chapter 1, all things exist because of God's will. So the ultimate truth is God's will, uh, and he will make sure that it continues to pervade creation, whether we are part of it or not. Biblically, um, Scripture focuses truth on what we call the doctrine of salvation. Uh, The word for that is soteriology, the study of salvation. And truth is revealed in the gospel through God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. And what that means is is that, again, if we want to know what's true, watch what Christ did to reconcile us and and, and the grace that we receive from it. And then we need to mimic that for those around us uh, and that puts us in the truth uh, and that is something that is proclaimed by christ and the apostles uh, you get it in john chapter 8 john chapter 18 romans chapter 1 second corinthians chapter 4 just as examples read those when you get a chance um, it's foreshadowed in the old testament peter in first peter t- reflects back on the old testament and talks about how the truth through this salvation, was already being talked about uh, by the Old Testament writers, right? God's revelation in Christ is true, but it is not really in contrast to the Old Testament. It is not the same as in the Old Testament. It is fulfilled, but it's not that the Old Testament teachings are wrong or false. It is that they are a bit more shadowy, if you will, incomplete it is through Jesus Christ that the truth is made complete. And so the New Testament becomes this reflection and this record of fulfilled truth. Right, So we don't, we don't fault the Old Testament writers for missing the mark necessarily on what Jesus brought forth. They did what they were told to do. But it wasn't as clear because we needed to have the manifestation of God, Jesus Christ, present with us to show us that truth. That's why Jesus, as we have said before, is never plan B. Jesus is always plan A. Jesus brings the truth to us. John chapter 1, verse 17. And the Holy Spirit walks us or leads us into everything truthful. John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus brought the truth. The Holy Spirit walks us through the truth. All right? Then we get to uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7, going through verse 17, and John's going to start talking about um, this, I have a new commandment, ah, but it's not really a new commandment, which is some interesting language, and he's going to describe what that means uh, to them and to him, uh, and then he will go into some, some detail about who he is talking to and what he is talking about. So let's take a look at First uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. It says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new command, commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And we're not 100% sure of what John means by the word that we have heard. It could be the Jewish writings in the Old Testament. That they, where the command was given. You can find the correct commands to love and for truth back then. You can see uh, the reflections and the echoes of Jesus Christ. So John may be pointing that far back because his audience is is probably a Jewish uh, Christian audience. Uh, Jews who have converted to become Messianic Jews. We're not 100% sure necessarily, but It feels that way when John is writing. If he's writing to Jewish converts, then probably he's reflecting on Old Testament language. What were the things that they were told back then? If he is writing to Gentile converts, then they have no uh, uh, foundation in the Old Testament. He's not really reflecting on that. He would be more reflecting on the earlier gospel writings, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So what is John trying to cover in this verse uh, and in this passage? Uh, Let's look at verse 8 and kind of read some more and then we'll come back and summarize it. It says, Yet I am writing you a new commandment that is true in him. This is what makes it true. It's true in Christ and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says I am in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in darkness. Do you see the the understanding and the fidelity there. If you know the truth, but you hate someone because you can't hate, truth is love, love is truth, then you're still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother, verse 10, or a sister, lives in the light. And in such a person... There is no cause for stumbling, and that word there for stumble is exactly that. It means an unseen object that could trip you up, right? So we're careful how we walk in darkness because we can get tripped up, we can fall over, we can cause injury and harm. And so when we live in darkness, then we're going to miss the truth, and we're going to fall all over ourselves getting to it. You know, when I was uh, in a class in college one time, we did trust walks. I don't know if you've ever done a trust walk where you're blindfolded and you walked around, but you didn't have a clue where you were going, and you were led by someone else. And I actually did it a couple of times uh, in classes, di- different classes that I took. Uh, the first time I did it, uh, the classmate that walked me around was a bit of a joker, and so he, he had a joyful time into running me into everything. <laughs> he ran me into a wall. He ran me in, uh, into a set of steps, into a guardrail. He was having a blast leading me incorrectly. I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't see. When I did it the second time, I had a young lady who was a classmate, and she was great. And, of course, she was a bit more caring and understanding, uh, and she led me wonderfully well. I didn't run into anything. Well, this is what John's talking about, right? If we're going to live in a world that is broken and fleshly, and we allow ourselves to be led around by people who are from the darkness, Right, the Satan and and evil and and the worldly powers, then we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to break break our bones and all kinds of stuff. But if we allow ourselves to be led by someone who is light, and that is Jesus Christ uh, through the Holy Spirit, then we're not going to stumble, we're not going to fall, we're not going to get hurt. All these things aren't going to happen to us. Isn't that a beautiful image? That's what John is trying to teach us in this, in these verses right here, verse eleven. But whoever hates another believer is in darkness, walks in darkness, and does not know the way to go, because the darkness has brought on blindness. I am writing to you, little children. That's going to begin our next section. So let's stop right there for a minute and let's take a look at this commandment piece some more, and let's look a little bit at light and darkness. This new commandment is not brand new. It's been fulfilled. It is an old commandment fulfilled. So think about it this way. Uh, It is an abiding command in a transient world. The command is always there. It has never changed. It is just fulfilled. It is the world around us that keeps changing. And if we focus on the commands of Christ and not the commands of the world, then we'll walk in truth and light. Right? I, I find myself talking about uh, people doing right and wrong far less than I used to because right and wrong are cultural norms. What is right and what is wrong changes from generation to generation. But if you talk about sin and separation, those are terms that last. And that's the same way with this command to love that John is talking about, to love the way that Christ has loved. The command is old, but it is made new in Jesus Christ. Uh, And again, if it is a Jewish audience, that command goes all the way back to the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, right? We get the Shema, we get the greatest laws. Jesus uh, recaptures those in in the Gospels when he says, uh, you love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in one Gospel. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all the commands hang on that. Every other command hangs on that. And for Jews, that frames theirs. But now, Jesus has taken that a step further. And for us, he tells us, not only that, you've got to love. This is out of John chapter 13, 34. You've got to love just like I loved. Which was up to sacrificial death. That takes it Far further than what is given us in the Old Testament. and So you can see this movement from a shadowy, love as best you can, love others, you know, love God, love yourself, love others. But then Jesus says, I'm going to take that to another level. You need to love just as I have loved. You need to have a sacrificial love regardless of the person. That love is for everybody, no matter their culture, no matter their color, no matter their background, no matter their brokenness or their struggles in life. And I get that there are people around us that are not comfortable for us. I get it. There are people that aren't comfortable for me. Good Lord, I'm not comfortable for a lot of people. But that doesn't allow me to abdicate myself from loving them. I don't have to like people. They don't have to like me. That's not what love is. See, love in Scripture is not emotional. When we're talking about the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ, we need to let go of our emotional uh, definitions of love. We're not talking about love because someone is pretty or handsome. We're not talking about love because someone else is good to me. What we're talking about is a deep and abiding love that will never give in that will be there all the way to sacrifice. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. The kind of love that made allowed Jesus to die for us regardless of whether we earned it or not, right? So in Jesus, this new command, this old command becomes new because it's renewed and it's fulfilled and it is completed. And it's completed in like four ways. One is is that new emphasis which we just talked about. The emphasis goes beyond uh, the Deuteronomy and Leviticus references in that it's not just love your brother and sister, it's love everybody. And it's love everybody the way I loved you. Secondly, it is new in the quality of love, right? In that selfless, sacrificing love that Jesus showed us. Thirdly, it's new in the extent of the love. It goes beyond other believers to everybody. Think about that story of the Good Samaritan. What a great parable that Jesus told uh, to, to, to grab hold of that lawyer, that scribe who was trying to define his community as narrowly as possible because he wanted to be comfortable. And Jesus changed the definition neighbor. Neighbor is not who is around you, your neighbor is who needs you. Total different different definition of neighbor. So to the extent that we love, Christ redefines it. And then fourthly, it it is new again because of our fresh apprehension of it. And what I mean by that is the concept and doctrine of love does not change. It lasts forever. But how we experience it in culture Always changes. How do you experience love today? The command remains, but it is always made fresh and new with each generation because the need for love in each generation is fresh and new. That is what John is telling us. And isn't that fabulous? Isn't that a neat way to walk around and think about what it means to be light and truth for those around us. Hey, we're going to wrap it up right there for this podcast. We'll pick back up right here next time, and we will keep moving forward. So remember, please stay in the Word, and we're going to keep this journey going. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms and on YouTube for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com. We'll see you next time.